everybody, and welcome back to Sports Crush with D-Crime. I'm your host, David Cromwell. Well, the third and final phase of NFL OTAs have commenced. As we speak, all 32 teams are putting in the remaining on-field work until the league's annual six-week summer break. During this time, coaches and players often rave about their rookies to the press, but often those claims eventually get disproven when the games begin. We here at Sports Crush with Decrom enforce our no-spin policy 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, and do our absolute best to help all of you football fans cut through the spin and get to the truth. Today, we are going to get all the truth we can get on the 2017 draft classes of the NFC South, which is the fifth edition of our draft recap series, and to help us get the best possible picture of the rookies of the Panthers, Saints, Buccaneers, and Falcons, it is an extraordinary pleasure to have Charles McDonald back on the program. For those of you that don't know him, Charles is a world-class football analyst that contributes to Bleacher Report, the Falcoholic.com, which is the Atlanta Falcons fan page for SBNation.com, and also is the co-host of the podcast Setting the Edge, which I highly encourage you to check out. Charles McDonald uh, with Justice Mosqueda have done a fantastic job putting that podcast together, and it's some great content, folks. Uh, but I talk too much, so without further ado, let's welcome Charles back to the show. How are you doing, Charles? I'm doing good. I'm doing better after that uh, illustrious uh, welcome right there. Thank you for that. <laughs> You are very welcome, Charles. It's always a pleasure having a great football mind like you on this program, like I said, to help all of us football fans get as much truth as we can get um, in an era of unprecedented spin coming from NFL PR departments. And now uh, let's talk some NFC South draft classes, beginning with the Carolina Panthers, who made it a priority to get Cam Newton some more juice on offense. And that was a pair to their first two selections, selecting uh, Heisman Trophy candidate uh, Christian McCaffrey at eight overall, and they drafted a similar player in round two in Ohio State's Curtis Samuel. And what made the Panthers' offense so amazing in 2015, as Merrill Hodge and others pointed out, was how diverse their ground game and the scheming around their running attack was. Like, you could go up the gut, traditional power football, and also do all the exotic stuff with the jet sweeps, read option, reverses, you name it. And it, it, it wasn't present last year, and I think that was one of the reasons why the offense took a nosedive last year. Um, will the selections of Christian McCaffrey and Curtis Samuel help the Panthers' offense regain their 2015 level of production, if not better? Uh, I don't know if it's going to get back up to you know that level where Cam was winning the MVP, just because when you have two rookies, it, it's kind of hard to just to bank on them to get you back to being you know top 10 offense, but... These guys are definitely exactly what uh, Cam Newton needed. And when you just look at going into the draft, what they had on offense was really it was it was pretty pathetic. I mean, you have you let Ted Ginn go to the Saints and it, for most teams, losing Ted Ginn wouldn't be a big deal. But the Panthers have put themselves in a situation where Ted Ginn was their best receiver. So when you let Ted Ginn walk away and you replace him with Charles Johnson, who got buried in a pretty average Minnesota Vikings wide receiver depth chart last season, it, it's it's not looking great. So the the weird thing that I've had with people who criticized the first two picks because they said that, uh, you know, Christian McCaffrey and Curtis Samuel, they were very similar players and they thought it was a bit redundant. But when you don't have anybody on your offense that can create explosive plays outside of your quarterback, then if you add those two guys in your first two picks, I don't really view that as redundant. And like you said, they'll be able to line both up in the backfield. You, you can line up 
McCaffrey at running back. You can line him up at receiver. You can do the same thing with Samuel, even though he's listed as a receiver. You can also line up line him up in running back. And when you think about what the Panthers were able to do really well when they were on that Super Bowl run, outside of Cam just being uh, Hercules for them because he did he did carry a huge love of that offense, but they were able to break down defenses running, you know, triple option, uh, reverses, speed options, shovel options. And when you can use options as a part of your offense, that opens up the like the passing game. And now you have two weapons that can run that that can make that can bring real damage in the run and pass game. So for the Panthers to start off a draft like that, you have to be uh, pretty pleased. Absolutely. And you just answered one of my follow-up questions as well by um, saying that, uh, yes, the critics uh, pointed out that uh, since McCaffrey and Samuel are very similar players, they uh, kind of found that a little too redundant. And I completely agree with you. It's not redundant. And also, I personally believe that McCaffrey and Samuel bring some different traits to the table. And if you share that viewpoint, what do you think makes um, McCaffrey and Samuel different and how will their utilization of McCaffrey differ from that of Samuel? Well, I think when you look at McCaffrey, it was really weird to see people say that maybe he wasn't going to be a guy that could hold the load at in the NFL just because we saw at Stanford he got an absurd amount of touches and he never really got hurt. So for that to be a concern for people was kind of weird. But I, I think that McCaffrey is a much better runner with the football, especially between the tackles and Samuel is. And that's what you draft a running back to do at, at eight. But uh, so I, I think, like I said, McCaffrey, he's better inside. Uh, but Samuel, he has that breakaway speed. I mean, lost in the the noise that was John Ross's 4-2-2 was that Samuel ran a 4-3-1 on the same day. And just because, I, I guess, the 4-2-2 and the, the record, that was so stark that we never really talked about Samuel's speed. But he's a home run threat, and you saw at Ohio State when he can get deep uh, behind the secondary or even on a little toss play if he can get – if he can hit the edge. And he, he's usually gone. So to add guys, you know, McCaffrey can be – your inside uh, runner, and he can play some slot receiver in a pinch too. And Samuel, he can be kind of like how the the Vikings used Percy Harvin when he was uh, healthy in, in his heyday, and a, a guy that can really be a weapon in the return game, the running game, the passing game, who has the the speed you look for to make big plays. Most definitely, and Christian McCaffrey, Curtis Samuel weren't the only piece of help the Panthers got Cam Newton in the draft. At the end of round two, the Panthers selected one of your personal favorite offensive line prospects in this draft in Western Michigan's Taylor Moten. Major analysts such as Mike Mayock and Josh Norris compared Moten to Raiders Pro Bowl guard Kelechi Assembly, arguably the best guard in the game. Uh, what do you see his long-term role with the Panthers? Do you see him as a replacement for Trey Turner uh, if Turner leaves in free agency next year, or do you see him as more of a right tackle? I, I think he's going to stay at right tackle, and, and that's fine. I mean, I was fine with them. It, like, if the Panthers had decided to, I don't trade back from eight and then they wanted to get an offensive tackle, I would have been fine with them taking Taylor Moten in the first round just because I think we talk about right tackles as if they're not as value, valuable. And, I mean, when you look at the contracts, left tackles still get more money than right tackles. But even in the past few years, we've seen guys like Lane Johnson, Ryan Schrader, Mitchell Schwartz, those guys get, you know, pretty big contracts that you don't normally see right tackles get. And just when you look at uh, who who your right tackle is going to have to go against in in the league. So just in, the, in your own division, you have Vic Beasley 
and Cam Jordan, who line up over right tackles for the most part. And then guys like Von Miller, Justin Houston, J.J. Watt, Whitney Merciless. These are guys that your right tackle is going to have to face. So when you can get a talented prospect there, I don't think you could. there's really a spot too high to take that. And my comparison for Moten is he's he's what DJ Fluker was supposed to be coming out of Alabama. You know, we talked about Fluker back then as, you know, athletic guy that can play uh, tackle and guard, but uh, it just never really panned out for him. And that, when you look at Fluker, it's just he wasn't really as athletic as people were touting him out to be. And I think we have a better grasp of that now in 2017. And if you go on mockdraftable.com and you look at Taylor Moten's athletic testing, he's one of the most athletic offensive linemen in this entire class. So you get to you kind of get to do two upgrades with one because I I don't think that uh, Michael Ower is going to play again just because th- those concussion issues are, are really scary. So you get to kick Tri Turner back into right guard where he was dominant in 2015, and then you get to upgrade your right tackle spot in Taylor Milton. So that's really like two upgrades at the price of one, and we'll see whatever Matt Khalil is able to do on the left side, And even though I'm, I'm not – not too pumped about that signing, but yeah, Moten, uh, Samuel McCaffrey, that was that was a great way for them to start off the draft, in my opinion. Oh, most definitely. And in round three, they uh, dedicated their attention to the other side of the ball on defense and filling a major hole at the def- defensive end. They don't have an alpha dog pass rusher uh, rushing from the defensive end spot at the present time. Yes, they brought Julius Peppers back. Mario Addison's a good player, but... Uh, Peppers uh, is just a rotational piece at this point, and uh, Addison is absolutely nothing special. And they traded up quite a bit to select Deshaun Hall from Texas A&M, who played opposite Miles Yard, who obviously went number one overall to the Browns. And uh, I just wanted to get your opinion on Deshaun Hall, and do you think he could become the next great threat for the Panthers uh, off the edge? Uh, I I like where they got him. I don't think he's going to be like the the next big thing. But when you look at his, uh, I guess athletic profile, like those types of guys tend to be uh, solid players. Just when you look at like the size and the three cone and ten yard split, it, it that 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 style of athlete is conducive to success at the defensive end position. And when you look at what they had on. Uh, on defense, it was just a bunch of old dudes like Julius Peppers and Charles Johnson. They let Coney Ely go. So you really had to add somebody with some youth and some athleticism. So to get Deshaun Hall in the third round, that was I thought that was a good pick for them, especially after letting Coney Ely go to the Patriots. Yes, as long as he's able to uh, uh, play up to the level of Coney Ely, that would be a tremendous, tremendous pick for the Panthers. And now from the Carolinas to the Bayou, let's break down this uh, New Orleans Saints draft class said it, it and just like the Panthers top priority was getting Cam Newton more weapons the Saints top priority was obviously their pass defense the Saints defense has been consistently in the NFL's basement for these past I don't know three four years and uh, they and the pass defense is uh, probably the most problematic part of that and that's why they spent two of their first three picks on defensive back, starting with Marshawn Lattimore with the 11th overall pick. And in the second round, they selected Marcus Williams, a safety from Utah. How much improvement should we expect from the state secondary in 2017? And how do Marshawn Lattimore and Marcus Williams help in that endeavor? Oh, well, I thought Marshawn Lattimore was like a top five pick in this process. I I don't know how he fell all the way to 11. Maybe it's some issue with his hamstring or something like that. But when you watch the tape, he is supremely, supremely talented. I mean... Uh, 
when they had kind of like a weird rotation with the defensive backs, and when I say weird, I mean stupid. I mean, you, you just don't, they rotated their defensive backs like you see other teams rotate their defensive linemen, which never really made much sense to me. But when Lattimore is out there, this is like a legitimate, this is a guy who can legitimately be a top tier corner in the league. So to get him at 11 was an absolute steal, and they really needed some help at corner. And I think Marcus Williams is probably going to take that. Um, Jarris Bird role because they cut him after that was a disaster of a deal for them. And when you kind of look at where the NFL is heading, or at least where you, where, where, where the game seems to be evolving, is a lot of teams want to be able to run three safety sets. So they drafted Von Bell last year and Kenny Vaccaro a couple years before that. So theoretically, on paper, you have your guy that can play single high, Marcus Williams, because he's got the range that you look for out of a, a free safety. And then you have your two guys who can play in the slot and, you know, match of a man coverage in the box and, and uh, Vaccaro and Von Bell. So that kind of helped complete their, I guess, safety trio. And it'll be interesting to see how those guys play out throughout OTAs and camp and preseason. Oh, absolutely. And the Saints are obviously banking on that, those three safeties and Lanamore to help get their defense out of the doldrums. And Lanamore wasn't their only pick in round one, as the Saints also had the 32nd overall pick in the that they got from the Brandon Cooks trade. And they selected off, offensive tackle from Wisconsin, Ryan Ramchek. And uh, this is an interesting situation for Ramchek. I, I like Ramchek, first of all, but the uh, Saints already have a solid left tackle in Teron Armstead. And Zach Streif, their right tackle, is 34 years old and getting up there. And, uh, and there were some split opinions on Ramchick and, and where his best fit would be, whether it would be on the left side or right side. And I was wondering, uh, what do you think Ramchick's best long-term fit with the Saints is? Do you think he replaces Zach Streif at right tackle? Or do you see it potentially replacing Teron Armstead at left tackle, given Armstead's uh, injury issues? Uh, I think it's too soon to pull the plug on Armstead. But like you said, Streif is 34, so that's a little bit of an insurance policy and when, I remember after the draft came out, uh, they were prepared to take Reuben Foster at 32. I mean, they were Reuben Foster even oh, said yeah. they were on the phone with him. Uh, and you know how that ended. The 49ers jumped up ahead and uh, picked him at 31. So maybe this move, when you when you get the context of what happened with Reuben Foster, this move kind of feels like a panic move almost. But look, you can't, it never hurts to add an offensive tackle depth. Uh, maybe the first round is a little bit too rich for that, but. Uh, Zach Streif in the like the waning days of his career, this is it. It, it makes sense. Uh, I, I think that he's probably going to have to man the right side of the offensive line just because uh, Armstead, I think, is really, really, really underrated. Like I think he's one of the best left tackles in the league when he's healthy. So to have Armstead and Pete and Unger and then Ramchek theoretically should be okay, and they signed Larry Warford over from uh, from Detroit. So it's interesting to see teams pouring in all these resources into the offensive line and the Saints are just the next thing to do that. And it is very wise considering Drew Brees is no spring chicken going on 38, but he hopes to play into his forties and to help him do that, they got to get him the best protection possible. And they also got Drew Brees, one of the best possible weapons of the draft in round three, when they traded up uh, quite a few spots to take Tennessee running back, Alvin Kamara and Kamara, I believe, is going to be that explosive threat for the Saints' offense this year. 
that picks up the slack for losing Brandon Cooks. I don't mean it necessarily playing the same role as Brandon Cooks because they play different positions. But when they traded away Brandon Cooks, they lost that juice on offense. But I believe they got it back here with Alvin Kamara, who they hope will be the long-term answer to Darren Sproles. And do you think it is reasonable to expect Alvin Kamara to be one of the top three targets for Drew Brees in the passing game this season? Um, I'm not sure, just because immediately it, he has kind of he has a battle to get to get reps. I mean, like Mark Ingram, I think Mark Ingram's a pretty talented player, and uh, he's not going to play him as a starter immediately. And then you kind of have this Adrian Peterson situation, which it just kind of gives a, a weird login because when you look at what Ingram brings to the game, I think Kamara is an excellent complement to him, but you've got Adrian Peterson block standing right in the way. So I think Kamara is going to be a guy that ends up getting snaps a little bit later in the year when the Saints realize that Adrian Peterson is just terrible and washed up now. But uh, I think like once we hit the fantasy playoff section or portion of the season, that's when you're going to, be leaning on a guy like Kamara, but early on, he, he's got to fight his way to reps. That is a good point, but I will say that neither Ingram nor Peterson strike me as that receiver out of the backfield, and the Saints like to go with the rotation, so Kamara could take that uh, third down change of pace role almost immediately. Uh, would you say so? Yeah, I would agree with you there. It's just, like I said, I, I, I think that Kamara is the perfect, like, if you have a one-two of Ingram and Kamara, that's really good. But the Adrian Peterson block is in the way, and it's not more. It's not really about how do you get him on the field with Ingram. It's more about how do you split those reps with Peterson, or do you just take the L on Peterson signing completely and just kind of phase him out of the offense? I mean, I think their best two backs are Ingram and Kamara because at this point in his career, Peterson is just a name more than anything. I completely agree, and let's uh, go back to. Uh that stay in the Gulf region actually and analyze this draft class of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who I believe had a fantastic, fantastic draft. And uh, I, I agree. Marshawn Lattimore was a steal for the Saints at 11, but the Buccaneers might've outdone them at 19 with Alabama tight end OJ Howard, who was uh, thought of by many as a top five to eight talent in this draft. Uh, first of all, why do you think OJ Howard fell so far? Uh, I, I just think because, the way I, I always thought the the OJ Howard hype didn't really make that much sense to me. When people talking about him, he could go number four to Jacksonville. I'm like, well, that that doesn't really make sense to me because when you look at OJ Howard's two big games against Clemson, like th- those were really the only two big games that he had, and the the big games that he had in those games were uh, like shot plays where the the where they're faking a screen and then he overruns a real a real route behind him, or they fake a pass one way and then they hit OJ Howard on the screen the other way and he runs down the field. Now there's no denying that he's extremely athletic, but usually when you see guys go in that uh, you know top ten range, they, the production in college is usually usually behind it. And I know that his last season there, Alabama didn't have the greatest throwing situation with Jalen Hurts, but I mean before that you had. Uh, Blake Sims, and then A.J. McCarron. So it, it, it kind of makes sense to me, but we're talking about this guy who's, who's supposed to go top five, but he doesn't really have the uh, receiving production to back that up. Now, getting him at 19 makes a lot of sense because you don't really have the huge ex- expectations on him early. You're putting him into an offense with Mike Evans and Deshaun Jackson and Doug Martin if he's able to do what he's supposed to do. So 
I like it in I like him at 19 a lot more than I would have top five, and I think the the range that he fell into uh, better gave gave a better view of how the NFL viewed him as a prospect versus uh, draft Twitter. That is definitely a great point, Charles, uh, and it's always important to know that often there's a chasm between uh, the NFL and uh, draft Twitter and the wider draftnet community about uh, a lot of prospects, and uh, O.J. Howard just uh, might have uh, fit that description there. And uh, But they say that the reason why Howard's stat line from college wasn't overwhelming is, was because they didn't use him uh, that, a certain way. How do you believe Tampa Bay will better utilize O.J. Howard than Lane Kiffin did at Bama? Well, I, first of all, I think O.J. Howard, he's going to have to be – like OJ Howard is a great blocker. There's no denying that. I mean, if you go watch watch that Alabama Texas A&M game, he puts Miles Garrett in the dirt a few times. So like the the blocking is not an issue. But when I was able to get my hands on some of the all 22 tape for Alabama, he's not very nuanced nuanced route runner down the field. Like when there there be plays when Jalen Hurts gets in trouble and OJ Howard has a wide open space that he can run to, but he's still a bit clunky and robotic in return to his regards to his route running like he's he's physically capable of doing whatever you need him to do on the field but mentally sometimes he gets a little bit too entrenched in what the route says to do and he doesn't have like that natural feel uh for receiving the ball like last year i really liked austin hooper out of stanford that the falcons ended up drafting because he had that that feel for being a receiver the feel for finding open spots in the zones the feel for you know tipping routes off to beat man coverage and howard just isn't there yet but i think if you have the athleticism that he has and the blocking that he has that's a guy that you can get on the field right away and early on i would expect him i, I wouldn't expect the gaudy stat line this year uh just because he, there's a lot of mouths to feed on that offense and rookie tight ends tend to struggle a little bit just because there's so much going on with learning the passing game and the running game and adjusting to the size and speed of NFL defensive linemen and NFL linebackers. So I think maybe early on he's gonna be used like they did at Alabama when he had his big games, you know, screen game, uh play action and stuff like that as he adjusts to the NFL game. Like you don't really see outside of uh, like Jimmy Graham and Rob Gronkowski, you don't see rookie tight ends coming in and just set the world on fire. And even those guys didn't really do it to the degree that they are now. So I would I would temper expectations for O.J. Howard or really any rookie tight end because it, it, it just takes a while for them to adjust. Oh, oh, it most certainly does. And uh, you mentioned O.J. Howard's blocking. I, 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 I watched some of that uh, Texas A&M game on draftbreakdown.com and his blocking is just super advanced for a rookie tight end. And I definitely believe that they will use him uh, to help protect Jameis Winston when he drops back to pass uh, because uh, he, I believe, could be a crucial extra body to help that those offensive tackles that really aren't ideal for the Buccaneers at the moment. Yeah, and I, I think when you look at who else they add in the draft with Chris Godwin and Jeremy Nichols, and you, when you keep your tight end in on some passing plays, which Alabama did, and O.J. Howard, who was spectacular as a pass blocker too. So that's going to give James Winston some more time, and that offensive line outside of Ali Marpet is a little bit shaky. So whenever you can add blocking like that, it's going to be a plus. I completely agree, and uh, even though I don't know him, shout out to Ali Marpet from Tiny Little Hobart College, who has been just as good as most of us have expected him to be so far in his young NFL career. Just keep up the good work there. Allie. Oh yeah, if 
Uh, if you uh, if you want a good laugh, go look up Ali Marpet's uh, college hi- highlight tape. It's it's hilarious because I mean I played some D three ball at, at uh, Gettysburg College and it, like I played defensive tackle. Uh, I, when I was my heaviest, I was two hundred fifty five pounds playing defensive tackle. So that's like a linebacker size in the NFL. And Ali Marpet, he was like a grown man, like a grown NFL offensive guard playing against like a step above high school. So it's really funny just watching pancake guys and just manhandle them. So if you have, if you want to laugh, go look up Ali Marpet's college highlight tape. Most definitely. And uh, back to this uh, 2017 uh, Buccaneers draft class. Uh, in round two, they uh, went to the defensive side of the ball and selected Justin Evans, a safety, and some people had him as a corner, though, uh, out of Texas A&M. And I think this was another good pick by Tampa because their, their safety situation uh, the past couple years with Chris Conte, for crying out loud, starting at free safety, that is one of the, the least ideal uh, safety situations in the entire NFL. And uh, I think Chris Conte has to watch out because I think he has some competition and uh, do you see Justin Evans as the Bucks starting free safety in week one? He could be. I, I think he have, he definitely has the talent to be. But when you watch him uh, versus LSU and some other teams that run the ball a lot, he he really has – he takes some, some bad angles to the ball. And uh, I, I think he offsets that a little bit because he's really, really good in man coverage. I mean, he, he may have run a 4-6, but – he moves like a cornerback when he's in coverage. So that's going to be a guy that can play free safety, that can come down and play the slot. But in order for him to get running, or not to get running, but in order for him to get playing time early, that free safety, that's your last line of resort versus a run. So if all else fails and the front seven misses, and that's that's who's left. So I would need to feel a little bit better about his tackling before I put him out there day one. But if I need somebody to come in and play the slot in between uh, Brent Grimes and Vernon Hargreaves, he's he's the perfect person to do that, especially when you look at how they just let go of uh, Altron Werner earlier this offseason. There's a, there's a bit of a void there. And I think Justin Evans can play that slot from day one. Yeah, and that slot position is an increasingly important position in today's pass-happy NFL. And in round three, you mentioned uh, Chris Scott with the Buccaneers added to their amazing plethora of weapons by selecting the Penn State wide receiver. And uh, I uh, heard about him from some people pre-draft. I heard he was very fast. And uh, and when he was picked, I thought, oh, uh, maybe they believe he takes Deshaun Jackson's role long-term because they only uh, brought in Deshaun Jackson on a relatively uh, team-friendly contract. But uh, after looking at his site and realizing that Vincent Jackson's no longer there, I say, ah, I think they might have uh, drafted him to replace Vincent Jackson. Do you think Chris Godwin is the ideal replacement for v Yeah, uh, just because like, if you go back and watch the uh, – was the Rose Bowl versus uh, USC. I mean, their quarterback wasn't even making good throws, it, but th- this dude is just making unbelievable catches, and he makes plays after the catch. He's a beast when the ball's in the air. He's really good at adjusting the catches. Uh, I was honest, The more I went back and watched uh, his tape, and I didn't really get to him before the draft because uh, my receiver wasn't uh, – a need for Atlanta going to the draft. So I kind of went back and watched some of the NFC South players after the fact. And I, I was surprised that Chris Godwin dropped that far. I mean, you look at the way he can play, 
his athleticism, the way he showed up in big games, that's usually a guy that you see go higher, especially in a weaker wide receiver class. But when you look at where the Bucks are, in a, just from a personnel standpoint, it makes sense that this is going to be the guy that picked to replace uh, Vincent Jackson. Now, he, he's not as big as Vincent Jackson. He's about you know, 6'1", 210, 215. And Vincent Jackson was 6'5", 230, like we all know. But he has that same playmaking ability when the ball's in the air like Vincent Jackson. And when you have a quarterback like Jameis Winston, who's going to take his chances in the air and just throw the ball up to his playmaker sometimes. Hey, Chris Godwin, that's a role that he can thrive in. And as the third receiving option uh, next to Mike Evans and Deshaun Jackson, he's going to have a lot of chances to make plays as a rookie. Oh, my goodness. He he definitely is. And just look at who Jameis Winston has to throw the ball to. He's got Mike Evans, who's a pro bowler, and if not uh, heading towards all pro level very quickly. He's got Deshaun Jackson, who could still take a top of a defense. He's got Chris Godwin, who has enormous promise. O.J. Howard has enormous promise. Cameron Brait, don't forget him, folks. If uh, there's a Bucks tight end zone in fantasy this year, as Charles applied, it might be Cameron Brait and not O.J. Howard. Uh, uh, Jeremy McNichols, a great receiver out of the backfield, who they drafted on day three. How on earth do you defend this Bucks passing attack with all these weapons? It's, it's it's going to be tough, but like I said before, the offensive line still needs some work. It, it's kind of just Ali Marpet and uh, Demar Dotson has his moments at right tackle, but he's he's getting up there and his, his play's been a little bit shaky as of late. But if like if this if this offensive line can find a way to consistently give Jameis Winston time, they are going to shred teams. I mean, when you just look at what. Deshaun Jackson was able to do with Kirk Cousins. I mean, there's a reason that Kirk Cousins' stats look so much better than they were because when you look at the stats, you see, oh, Kirk Cousins, he went, you know, say 25 for 32, 330 yards and three touchdowns. But when you look at the tape, it's it's a lot of it is Deshaun Jackson adjusting to poorly throwing balls deep and catching them for big games. And uh, I, I think that Jameis Winston does have a little bit of the same uh, tendencies to be erratic with his throwing like that. But when you have somebody who's elite at tracking the ball, you can get away with that. And to have him compliment Mike Evans, then you, th- you throw in uh, Cameron Bray and OJ Howard and Jeremy Nichols and uh, Chris Godwin, that's going to be an explosive offense. We just need to see if the offensive line can hold up. Oh, it's definitely going to hinge on that offensive line. And uh, without further ado, let's talk about the 2017 draft class for Charles's favorite team, the reigning NFC champion Atlanta Falcons. And the Falcons, one of their big priorities this draft was to get Vic Beasley a running mate in the pass rush. And they did exactly that by trading up five spots to take Takaris McKinley, linebacker from UCLA, and that was one of the finest moments of the draft where he went <laughs> on stage to, accept his, to take his jersey from Roger Goodell, holding up a picture of his deceased grandmother, saying that how he kept his promise to her that he would continue playing and, uh, and become a success. Uh, th- that was a truly moving moment, I'm not going to lie. But on the football side, uh, what makes Takaris McKinley an ideal complement for Vic Beasley, and what does he bring to the table that Beasley does not? Uh, I think what he like when we look when you watch Vic Beasley play, he's just a pure speed rusher, and I mean that's fine. He made a living off of it this past season at 15 and a half sacks, had a lot of big plays. Uh, but Tack brings more of a power element to the game, and you know people look at the 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 40 time for Tack and his four five nine, and like oh well why wouldn't he be a speed rusher? Well he doesn't really have the he, he he's very 
fast and explosive in a straight line, but he doesn't quite have the nimbleness that Vic does around the edge. But when you watch Tack and when he gets uh, into those power rushes and he can get his hands inside the offensive lineman's hands, I mean, he will just throw dudes and dominate them. And he has that uh, competitive toughness that you always hear Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov talk about where he's he's going to hustle, he's going to play his ass off every single play. And you look at how he played through that torn labrum, which kind of hindered him towards the end of the season. You know, that's the kind of toughness that you look for. And uh, he's a, a 21-year-old graduate from UCLA, so the character is off the charts. And what, what I like about Tack is – or not – what I like about Tack, but the situation that he's coming into where you have Vic Beasley, you have Grady Jarrett, you have Don Terry Poe, Rasheed Hageman, Derek Shelby, Adrian Claiborne, guys who have shown flashes of being able to rush the passer on their own and create in one-on-one matchups. So Tack doesn't have to come out and be the guy early on, and I think that's going to help him a lot. And he, I think he's going to get uh, a lot of plays just based off his effort and his speed more than his technique early on. And uh, just kind of ease him into the lineup as a rotational rusher who can play the run and really get after the quarterback. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a good pick for them. Oh, I, I totally think so too. I am personally salivating uh, at the potential of Vic Beasley at Tat McKinley coming off the edge and Grady Jarrett pushing the pocket up the middle. Uh, that has so much promise for the Falcons that uh, they added another um, dimension of promise to that defense in round three this year by taking another LSU linebacker. Dan Quinn obviously loves his LSU linebackers. He obviously took what last year, Deion Jones, who was a just a stud last year, and he took another this year in Duke Riley with the Falcons' third-round pick. And I re- remember uh, Pete Prisco uh, once t- tweeted out that many personnel execs believe that Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright were, and obviously still remain, the linchpins of the Seahawks' defense. And obviously that's the same Seahawks' defense that Dan Quinn obviously was the coordinator for for two seasons. Do you think the Falcons now have their version of Wagner and Wright with Deion Jones and now Duke Riley? Yeah, what was interesting about it was I thought that they had found like their K.J. Wright last year when they picked Devondre Campbell from Minnesota. Just cause when you look at the, the body type, it, it was they were – like the, the exact same body type, you know, big frames, really long arms, fast, uh, they'll let you cover tight ends and stuff like that. But uh, Duke Riley, he's he's not as big as Devondre Campbell, but man, he can really, really run. And when you look at the three linebackers, uh, Deion Jones, uh, Duke Riley, and Devondre Campbell, all those guys run in the four or five. So that's a ridiculous amount of speed to have at linebacker. And uh, I, I think the, what the plan is to, to have Duke Riley play weak side linebacker, Deion Jones come back and play middle linebacker, and then Devondra Campbell be uh, a strong side linebacker, which which makes sense because when you have your strong side linebacker, that can be a guy that matches up against tight ends and man coverage. And when you have somebody who is moving from weak side linebacker to strong side linebacker, that's going to give them an edge in, in the coverage department. And Duke Riley, like that, there that's so much speed on defense. And when you look at just the collective speed that the Falcons have, you have Duke Riley, Deion Jones, uh, Devondre Campbell, Tack McKinley, Vic Beasley, Keanu Neal. All these guys ran a four or five or lower. Uh, so it's it's going to be it's going to be really fun to see it in action, and I I can't wait to, to like the, the splash plays that these guys make are going to be so fun to watch. 
Oh, absolutely. And Dan Quinn has done just an astonishing job in turning around this Atlanta Falcons defense as fast as he has. And uh, they were done there. Uh, personally, my favorite pick of this Falcons draft class was one of their day three picks. And I'm talking about DeMonte Casey, a cornerback from San Diego State. A draft analyst friend of mine had tweeted uh, after the Falcons made the pick that he thought that Casey had the best ball skills of any corner in this class. And this was obviously arguably the deepest uh, class of corners uh, in a generation. What were your thoughts on the pick of DeMonte Casey and how can he help the Falcons defense continue their uh, rapid improvement? Well, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't watch him before the draft just because I got to a point like where I, I watched all like all the front seven guys. And then at that point I was just like, okay, if, if they pick, uh, you know, a, a cornerback or a safety or a guard on day three, I'll just watch that, uh, after the after the fact but kz man this guy can really play it, what's it, it's weird to or not weird but i'm interested to see how he converts to this free safety slot type of role because at san diego state uh they played a lot of cover four quarters coverage and he was my, mainly the right cornerback so he's only responsible for a fourth of the field on his side so I, like moving the free safety Moving the slot is going to be a bit of a transition for him. But like you said, the ball skills were just, I mean, I, I couldn't believe that some some of the interceptions he was making. I mean, he's baiting quarterbacks in the throws. He's making uh, catches that you would see receivers make, ripping balls out of receivers' hands. And Hey, hey look, if you're, you're going to get a guy who has, a, I want to say, 13 interceptions the past two seasons, which is just an extraordinarily high number, and you're going to get him in the third round and Hopefully you, you can convert him to uh, you know a slot safety hybrid where he can go. He has more ground to run and use those ball skills. I think he's going to be. A, I don't know if he's going to be a, an impact player right away, but definitely down the line in year two or year three, I, I expect him to be an impact player in the secondary. I share those expectations as well, and he is Charles McDonald, ladies and gentlemen. He is a contributor to Bleach Report's weekly NFL 1000 series during the regular season. Also the lead editor for the Falcoholic.com, which is the Atlanta Falcons fan page of SBNation.com, and also the co-host of Setting the Edge, a great podcast where he and Justice Mosqueda break down football in one of the more unique ways possible. Uh, you're highly recommended to check it out. You can follow him on Twitter at 4Verts. And Charles, we thank you once again for donating your time and your amazing, amazing knowledge of football to this program. But before you go, it, since this is the draft recap series, I have three questions that I use to conclude the program with all the guests, and uh, you're no different here. So, uh, so let's uh, get to business here. So, the first question: Out of all four teams combined, who do you think was the absolute best pick, and who was the absolute worst pick? The best. Best pick out of the four NFC South uh, teams. Yes, uh, the best pick. I, I I love Christian McCaffrey to the Panthers. I I there are people who are upset you don't take a running back that high. I don't care. That 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 dude's a stud. The the, the metrics, the eye test, the combine numbers say this guy's going to be a big time player. So that was that's what I thought the best pick was. The worst pick. Um, I'm going to go with Ryan Ramschick to New Orleans just because I it, it, it reeked of panic after the Reuben Foster pick fell through. And I, I, I think that in round one, in your, your team that's trying to get back to the playoffs with an aging quarterback, I know that protecting him is 
is is key, but at the same time, I thought maybe you want to get someone that's going to have a bigger impact year one. Very good points, and they say that day three of the draft is the day that separates the contenders from the pretenders, and those that draft uh, better on day three tend to be more likely to be a contender than a pretender. And uh, who is your favorite pick on day three for each team and why is the question. But before you answer, I'm going to say that since the New Orleans Saints only had one day three pick in Al-Qadid Muhammad, I will ask you to include him among their latter um, two third-round picks at Alex Anzalone and uh, Trey Hedrickson uh, when you answer the question about the Saints. So your favorite pick on day three for each team and why with the Saints having a little exception. Go ahead. Uh Day three for the Panthers, Corn Elder for Miami. I, 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 when I first watched him, I was like, "Holy crap! Why isn't this guy talked about as like a a, a top seventy pick, top sixty pick?" And then the more I watched, it, it, he was a little bit limited, and they ran a lot of cover too, and he just kind of squatted on the field and uh, made his plays that way. But in round five, you're getting a guy that has good ball skills and one of the better tackling corners I've ever seen. So. That's going to be a nice little upgrade for them, and he's going to compete with Captain Munderland, who just signed back with the Panthers for uh, some playing time in the corner at slot cornerback. And uh, I think when you pair him with James Bradbury, who had a really strong rookie year, that's a, a nice little young cornerback duo for the Panthers. And even Daryl Worley from West Virginia last season, he can play a little bit too. So that's my pick for the Panthers. For Atlanta, uh, it's KZ, like we just talked about. You, the ball skills are rare. Uh, you can probably just you, you can throw him anywhere, really, and pray that he becomes a, a good player. For Tampa Bay, my favorite third-round pick for them was Jeremy McNichols, ultra-productive player from Boise State. If Doug Martin for some reason can't get back to the form that he was at, uh, then McNichols is a fine substitute to not completely have the offense fall off a cliff. And for the Saints, I actually like the pick to go get um, Al-Qadim Muhammad in the, in the, on day three because when he was at Miami, I mean, he was he was a solid player. And then he got kicked out for some... I don't, I don't remember exactly what he got kicked out of Miami for, but to get... to take a flyer on a guy who has had production at a big time school and knows his way around the game. And you're still kind of looking for that uh, pass rusher across from Cameron Jordan. So to kind of throw stuff at the wall with Aquadine Muhammad and Trey Hendrickson, I, I like it. Oh, and it will be a treat to see if Aquadine Muhammad could turn out to be one of the biggest steals of this draft class. As you allude to the potential is definitely there if he keeps uh, his head on straight. And obviously, uh, I'm a uh, very nitpicky about uh, people issuing draft grades the day, the week, or even months after the draft. It often takes three to four years to assess the true grade of a draft class. So our final question is, in three to four years, which of these four draft classes do you think will be the best when it comes to on-the-field production? Rise up. Go Falcons. <laughs> no, I, it, it, either, the, either the Falcons or the Panthers, I think, just because when you look three years from now, uh, McCaffrey and, Stan, and Samuel should be staples of that Panthers offense with Cam Newton. And, and then I think uh, Tack, we should see Tack McKinley and Duke Riley and uh, Eric Sauber and, you know, really all those guys at the Falcons draft that come into their own. Because the, like all those guys for the Falcons, they have the athleticism that you look for. It's just about... I guess, fine-tuning those skills and with KZ making a position switch. 
Thank you very much once again, Charles McDonald, for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. I cannot stress that enough, and we definitely hope to have you on sometime in the very near future. And that's all for today here on Sports Crush with Decrom. But we plan to be back here early next week with the great Emery Hunt of FootballGamePlan.com to help us analyze the 2017 draft classes of the NFC East, Cowboys, Redskins, Eagles, and Giants, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to check out the episode archive as well as an up-to-date blog of mine at sportscrunch.com, and that is Crunch with a K. For Charles McDonald, our producer Chris Broadhead, man in the box, I'm David Cromwell saying so long and stay awesome. <laughs>